photo, I wonder how many of you remember the last time that you got a handwritten letter. For some of you, you probably have never got a handwritten letter. I'm of that certain generation that's kind of the crossover. I can still remember getting them. And there's one I always looked forward to. And that was my birthday card from my grandparents over in Canada. Oma and Opa have 120 direct descendants, so they had lots of birthday cards to send out. And one I was amazed is that it always arrived at least one week before my birthday. And that didn't matter if I was in West Africa, which is like the back of beyond, it takes forever for a male to get there, whether I was in New Zealand, whether I was in Australia, it always arrived on time. And my Oma, German is her first language. That's her mother tongue. So she would have to sit down and she would compose what she wanted to write. And it wasn't just a, dear Peter, happy birthday, love Oma and Opa. It was a full-on card. She filled every space of that card. So she'd have to write it in German first. And then she would laboriously translate it into English. It would take her quite some time to do this. And then she would sit next to Opa at the dining room table and direct him to write it in beautiful script because Opa had the beautiful handwriting. And then it would be mailed out. And she would know how many days it took to, to get in the post before my birthday. And I can remember going to that letterbox and seeing that that envelope with the Canadian stamp on it, and I knew what it was. And you sit down and you, you'd read it, and it was like Oma was sitting right next to you. And as you read it out, you almost heard her voice. And it was, a, it was special because it was a little part of her that she sent to me on my birthday. Because I didn't get to, to just go and hang out at her house because she was way over in Canada. But I treasured treasured those times. And we're going to be looking at the book of Philippians, which is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the, the believers in Philippians. It is a little piece of Paul that he sent to them that they treasured. And you see, what we often forget to, to remember is that Paul wrote lots of letters. Not all of them made it into the Bible. There were letters that he wrote that people read it and go, oh, that's nice, and kind of put it to the side and kind of forgot about it. But when he wrote this letter to the Philippians and they read it, they said, this is something special. This is more than just Paul talking here. We're sensing this is God talking to us. So they kept it and they read it again and again. And then they copied it and sent it to the church down the road, who also, when they read it, they went, wow, yeah, this is, this is more than just Paul talking. This is, this is God talking. So they copied it and sent it down to the church down the road. And within 20 years, it had spread right around the Roman Empire to all the churches from one end to the other. And this is... This is before the internet. This is before email. This is before even a regular postal service where people did not travel very far from their hometown. And yet they thought that this was important enough 
to copy and to send. So within 20 years, that whole Christian church in the Mediterranean had this letter, and they said, these are the words of God. And that's why we're looking at it. And when the elders, a number of, uh, about a month ago, decided in, in what's going to be our next preaching series, we had sort of different options to, to choose from, and, and we, came, we came to the, the book of Philippians and said, no, this, this is the one. Because there are, there are things in the book of Philippians that speak to our current context. The church there, the believers there, and where we are as a church, kind of, there's overlap. And as we listen to what God said to the first believers there at Philippians, Philippi, we can also go, this is the message that God is saying to us. So we're going to be spending the next sort of 10 weeks having a look at the book of Philippians, something a little bit different to the, the, the books of Samuel that we were looking at. So, with that kind of as an as a overview, let's turn to that book in Philippians. It's towards the, the back end of your Bible. And we'll start in chapter 1. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Jesus Christ at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're like me, when you read the letters in the New Testament, you tend to skip over the first couple of verses because it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, Paul's saying hi to so-and-so and let's get on to the really good stuff. But we need to just pause and just, just take some stock here and, and note some things because what I've just read out is really unusual. Paul does not normally start his letters like this. See, back in the ancient days, what you did when you wrote a letter is you, you, you stated who was writing the letter first. And then you'd state who you're sending it to and the relationship you have between those two people. That's how you opened your letters. It's a bit like today, when, you know, if you're writing a more formal letter, you'd write, dear so-and-so, and, -so, and that's, that's how we do it today. They did it a little bit different. So let's have a look. This is Paul and Timothy. They're working together, and they're sending this letter together. Paul's kind of the lead person, but he's got Timothy there. And the NIV describes it, describe themselves as servants of Christ Jesus. Now, a number of Bible translations have put the word servant because it sounds a bit nicer. The actual literal word is slave. And Paul is saying, I am a slave of Christ Jesus. I am the personal property of Christ Jesus. To do as he wants. Just about every other letter that Paul sends, he says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. I'm an ambassador. I'm a sent one. Here, he says, I'm a slave. And not just a slave of anybody, a slave of Christ, Jesus. Christ being the Greek translation of Messiah or anointed one. The person that the whole Old Testament was pointing towards. 
the person that the Jewish nation was looking forward to to deal with all the sin, to right all wrongs, to bring in the kingdom of God, to make this world the way it was supposed to be. And Paul's saying, I am a slave to Christ, that Messiah. Not only that, but to Christ Jesus. Jesus is, a, is the, the Greek Aramaic translation of the name Joshua, which means God saves. That God breaks into this world and saves us where we are. See, Paul's identity was wrapped up in Jesus Christ. You see, right at the beginning, he's laying it out and saying, look, I am the personal property of this, the, the anointed Messiah, the, 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 the one that was sent here on earth to, to, to fulfill the Old Testament, to save us. This is who I am. And then he goes on to, to, to describe who he's writing to. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi. Now, the word saint isn't a word we normally use. And if we use it, we tend to use it in, the, in, in modern day English as is the, the people that are like perfect or holier than other people. And, you know, those people that never do anything wrong. Often we use it in a sort of tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic way. But the original translation means holy or set apart. Those people that were different. They were different to everybody else around. They were set apart. They were dedicated to something. They were dedicated towards God. And notice they are saints in Christ Jesus. They are not saints because they are perfect. They are not saints because they're really good. They're saints. They're holy because of what Christ Jesus has done. Their identity, the Philippians' identity, was wrapped up in Jesus Christ, just like Paul's identity was wrapped up in Jesus. Not only is he writing to the saints in Christ Jesus, he's writing to the overseers, or another translation says elders, and the deacons, those people with responsibilities within the church. This is the only time Paul directly addresses the leadership of the local church for a whole book. So he's saying, this is not just for the average Joe Blow, this is for everybody. Whether you're more experienced than you're in leadership, whether you have areas of responsibility, or whether you're just a believer in that church, I'm speaking to you. And I'm not speaking to you as an apostle, somebody in authority. I'm speaking to you as somebody whose whole identity is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And I'm coming along and sharing this with you because we're in this together. Let's, let's start the book. Verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. 
Now, we've got to think, oh, I forgot. I forgot the most, one of the most important parts. Let's just back up a little bit. Um, verse 2. I forgot verse 2. It says, grace and peace to you from our God, the Father, and Lord Jesus Christ. A number of years ago, I was living in the Middle East, and, and I was a teacher at an international school. And whenever you greeted somebody, you would say, Salam Aleikum, peace to you. And they would reply, Salam, peace. And what you were saying is, things are right between you and me. There is peace between you and me. We can enjoy fellowship. We can, we can talk. We can, we can converse because there's nothing standing in our way. And Paul goes one step further and says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, we have the unmerited favor of God. God loves us so much, he's done something for us that we actually don't deserve. And because of that, we have peace. There is nothing between us and God. We can sit down. We can have a conversation. We can connect. We're not under punishment. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in verse 3, I thank my God every time I remember you. And I think, well, okay, what's the context? What, what was the church like? And to, to see that, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 16. And I'm going to invite Reno to come up, um, and he's going to read out that section. So, Reno, if you can come and read Acts chapter 16 and... It's verses 6 to 23, just to get a little bit of context. So I still don't quite know how to say all the places, so I apologize if I butcher them. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, and they tried to enter Bithynia, uh, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothracy. And the next day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there for several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the woman who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. 
Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. and Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake, and the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They are tricky names. So if we look at uh, a map, and here we've got the modern-day Turkey, and then it goes down to Syria, and then Israel down there, and then you've got Greece over here. So Paul's on his missionary journey. He's trucking through these major areas. He is focusing on what they call the province of Asia and Galatia because a lot of um, expat Jews lived in this area. And he had the strategy of going into a city, starting at the Jewish synagogue, um, preaching the gospel, and then kind of working out. And we heard in Acts that God was closing doors. And, and he was just getting moved on from place to place, and it was getting really, really frustrating. And, and God was just funneling him up towards here. And then he gets a vision and a real clear message from God to come over to Macedonia, which is this area over here, which is the top part of Greece. And he comes to, to Philippi, which is kind of like the big provincial center. It's a bit like the Hamilton of New Zealand. You know, it's that, that area that, you know, that, that, the, the big city for that particular place. So he gets to, to Philippi, and he does what he naturally does. He, you know, he looks around for the synagogue, but there is no synagogue. See, Philippi was uh, a Roman colony town. That's where the Romans would settle this, a lot of their retired um, soldiers. So you'd done your 20-year service. You got your land as compensation, and they would settle a lot of them around there. So it, was a very, it had a very Gentile kind of feel to it, not a lot of, of Jewish people there at all. So he comes to this town and, okay, there's no synagogue. I'll go to the next place that, that people normally congregate for prayer, which is down by the river. 
And he meets Lydia there, a businesswoman. And it's described that she is a, she is a seeker of God. She, she's looking to connect with God, but doesn't quite know. And Paul preaches the gospel and she says, yep, that's it, and becomes a believer. And then later on, Paul uh, has an encounter, drives out a, a demon, ends up being locked up in prison because of it. And the jailer is part of the Roman establishment. He has absolutely no interest in seeking after God. Absolutely none. His interest is in the status quo and keeping the Romans in authority, keeping everything ticking over. And yet God steps in and does something amazing in his life. Massive earthquake. He wakes up, thinks everybody's escaped, and he's going to be held accountable, and he's going to be executed the next day, so he might as well fall on his sword and actually you know, commit suicide before this happens. And before, this ha- before he's able to do that, Paul says, hey, no, we're here. And he realizes that this is God working. And he says, what must I do to become saved? And it goes on to say that that he and his whole household were baptized that night. So here we have two very different believers. One who was actively seeking God. And when they heard the gospel, they responded. And one who wasn't looking for it at all, and yet God stepped in and shook him up, and he responded. And there were lots of others that we don't know about that's not recorded in the Bible. But by the time Paul writes to the church of Philippians, there's quite a church there, a broad spectrum, a motley collection of Christians from all different walks of life. And that's why back in the beginning of Philippians, in verse 3, it says, I thank my God every time I remember you. Because he remembers back to that time and think, man, what has God has, has taken you from all these different walks of life? And he's opened your eyes and you've responded to the gospel, and isn't that amazing? And in verse 4 of Philippians, Chapter 1, it says, In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to the completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Notice how insistent Paul is in verse 4. How many times all comes up? In all. All my prayers for all of you. I always pray. This is this is this is the very heart of Paul. This is this is something that it's a big deal. And Paul says, you know, I pray with joy because you are a partner in the gospel the partnership of the gospel. 
Oftentimes when we think of the gospel, we're thinking of it as a one and done sort of thing. I realize I'm a sinner. I ask God for forgiveness. He forgives me and I'm saved. But the gospel is more than that. Because notice it says, you are a God, uh, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. The gospel is about our whole life. Not just the moment we become a Christian. It's every aspect of it. It's an ongoing journey. And he's saying, we're in this together. I'm on that journey, so are you. And Paul goes on to say, look, I, I look forward to it, you know, and I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. That you're under construction, you're halfway there, you're a quarter way there, three quarters away, I don't know. But Jesus is working in your life, and he's changing you to become more like him. And this good work that has been started is going to be finished one day. It's not finished yet. We might be frustrated at where we are. We might struggle with stuff. But God is working in our life so that one day, we will be like him totally, completely when we see him face to face. And then he goes on in verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Parents are always proud when their child reaches a milestone. And you know that because if you've got a little kid and he's just started to walk, proud mum and dad always shares it with everybody. Or when they are in a sporting team and they get, you know, the, the player of the day certificate, everybody knows. It's exciting. And as a parent, you, you mark those milestones because those milestones mean that they're growing up, they're reaching maturity. And it means that, that all that hard work that you put in, parenting and for them growing up, is worth it because you can see them developing into the young men and women they need to be, that they should be. And there's nothing prouder than for a parent to sit back and go, wow, look how far they've come. Because you can remember all the hard work to get them to that point. And Paul, when he, in verse 7, he says, it's right for me to feel this way about you. He's saying, I'm your spiritual parent. I've walked with you from the early days. I've seen those ups and downs. And it's right for me to be excited 
It's right for me to be filled with joy because I see where you are now. And you can imagine Paul sitting there. He's under arrest at the moment, but he's sitting there thinking back and going, Lydia, I remember that time when we met by the river and you were seeking after God, but you didn't quite get it. And you had an encounter with your creator. And now you're in a relationship with him and it has changed your life. And he remembers the jailer who was part of the establishment and was not interested in God at all, couldn't care less. And he remembers that God miraculously shook him up and he responded to the gospel. And that changed his entire world. And no longer was he part of the establishment just fulfilling the orders of, of the Roman Empire. But he was part of God's family. And he would have thought through others that we don't know about. And he's saying, you know, Paul's saying, I am right to feel this way. I'm right to have that joy. Because we all share in God's grace with me. We all have received the unmerited favor of God. We're not here because of some amazing thing we have done. We're not here because somehow we've measured up. We are here. We've reached this milestone because God is working in our life and changing us. Together, we are fellow journeyers on this journey. And he says, I long, long for you with affection of Christ Jesus. And you have to ask, well, what is, what is Paul longing for? And in verse 9 and 10, he comes to it. So let's have a look. And this is my prayer that you love, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. These two verses sum up the whole book. Everything that we are going to be looking at in the next sort of nine weeks links back to this. Paul's prayer is that the Philippians' love may abound more and more. That's an interesting statement. Because if I say I love, you're kind of waiting for the rest of the sentence, aren't you? It's like, I love what? I love my wife, or I love this, or, you know, it, love needs some sort of object. But Paul says here, may your love abound more and more. And you go, what? Love and what? Does he mean love towards Paul? Does he mean love towards God? Does he mean love towards fellow believers, to the world around us, to the gospel? What, what is it? puzzling. 
because it's like he's left something out. And it's kind of deliberately ambiguous because when we look at the rest of the book, it will answer it, and it will actually have different aspects of that. Love towards God, love towards others, love to, to, towards the, the world around us to, to share the gospel, all of those things. So as we're listening to the other sermons coming up, we can think back and say, how does this connect to our love growing and abounding more and more? And notice there that, that, that love abounds more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Because our, the way we think affects our actions. We are all, we, we all work off a set of assumptions. And the way we think about something results in the way we do things. I'm a deputy principal at one of the local schools at, at Baden. And one of my jobs is I kind of get called in when things go wrong in the classroom. And there was, there was a case just in the last week. Um, a child stormed out of the classroom made quite a big song and dance about it. And I was called in. The teacher was completely puzzled and went, I have no idea what happened here. So anyway, I managed to get the child boy into my class, into my office. And after he calmed down a bit and we started having a chat and we started sort of debriefing and, and figuring out what, what was the root cause? Because one thing I've learned is that we are all logical. Our thinking, there is logic to it. If our set of assumptions are in a certain way, there's kind of a logic to it, and then we, we act. Now, our set of assumptions might be a bit screwed up. And that was this case for this boy. It finally came out that he thought he had been asking his teacher for help the whole lesson. And then when it came to the end of the lesson, and the teacher came up and checked whether he had done his work and he hadn't done anything, so the teacher was going to keep him in at lunchtime to finish his work, because that's what you do as a teacher, he just completely lost it and said, well, you're blaming me because I asked for help all these times and you never gave help. So he completely you know, threw his book across the room and stormed out. The problem is, his asking for help only happened in his head. He never raised his hand. He never said anything out loud. He never went and stood beside the teacher. He just sat there looking at his book for an hour. And then when the teacher said, you haven't done any work, he didn't say, this is the reason. He just got angry because in his head, he had been asking for help for the last hour. See, it made logical sense in his head, but his assumptions were wrong because he never actually asked for help. Our thinking affects our actions. 
We need to have right thinking, which then leads to right action. Notice it's, it's right knowledge, which is the thinking, but then it's also depth of insight. So deep understanding is more just than just head knowledge. As I mentioned, a number of years ago, I was teaching at an international school in the Middle East, in Doha. It's kind of an interesting country because 95% of the people come from outside the country. And you have to be sponsored in by your employer. So your boss has to sign the piece of paper to allow you to get a visa. Your boss provides you accommodation. They have to sign the piece of paper saying you are allowed a vehicle license to be able to drive. They also have to sign a piece of paper to let you come in and out of the country. You're not allowed to take out a loan to buy a vehicle unless your boss gives permission. In fact, your boss kind of owns you during that time. And things were going well for a number of years. And in the, over there, you kind of have a, a contract renewal every year. And normally, it's just a sort of uh, fait accompli. You know, you just go in there and the boss says, oh, you want to stay another year? Yep, okay, cool. Sign the paperwork and, and there it is. The problem is, there was a change in boss. I got a new principal. For some reason, the principal didn't like me. So when it came time for that particular time of year, a few months to the end of the school year, everyone gets called into the office. I'm expecting to go and sign my contract renewal. Pretty straightforward. It's worked. No, no issues every other time. I get called in. And the boss just says, I'm not renewing your contract. Doesn't say why. Just, just not renewing my contract. Showed me the door. And I can still remember that conversation. I rang up Carol straight away and I said, look, my contract's not being renewed. And just, it's just kind of shock. Because... I'd have to leave, I lose my job. I have to leave the country. I'm not allowed to work in the, 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 anywhere else in the, the country. Everything changed because my boss would not renew my contract. Yes, in my head, I knew God is in control and he works things out for his purposes. Yeah, I knew that. But boy, there were some times there that the depth of insight wasn't there. Now I look back now and I go, yes, God was in that. And through a whole series of events, we ended up coming to Hamilton, being part of this church. And I go, yes, God was working on all that. But during that time, I might have had the head knowledge about it, but it certainly didn't feel like that. So Paul is saying, I want your love to grow in knowledge, but also depth of understanding. So the next step is so that you are able to discern 
what is best, that discernment, that ability to take that understanding and apply it to your life so that you may know what is best. Because often the good, the okay, the good enough gets in, rid of the, in the way of the best. Because remember, God wants us to be like Jesus. Not just good enough. This is not a C's get degrees type of thing. He wants us one day to be a mirror reflection of Jesus. And from that discernment, so that we may become pure and blameless until that day of Christ Jesus, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Because the end product is our actions speak. That our love grows because our knowledge of God grows, our insight into deep understanding of him, so we can discern and so we can live out that. So when people look at us, they see Jesus. And notice there, it says that the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, it's not us grit and teeth, you know, by just sheer hard work and grit and determination getting there. This is the work that God does in us, with us, together. So what? How do we apply this in our life? As elders, we chose Philippians because it speaks to us in our current context at Hokanui. As elders, we thank God every time we think of you as a church and as individuals, because we know how far you've come in that journey of faith. As elders, we are confident that he who began a good work in you will see it to completion. As elders, we pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you can discern what is best and fill and be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And the way we practically apply this is a few things that we can do. We can look back at our journey of faith and celebrate what God has done and share that with each other. We can develop habits that deepen our knowledge and understanding of who God is. We can use what we know to discern our next step. How does God want me to live out my life? I don't need to know the whole thing. It's a bit like driving in the fog. I don't need to see my destination. I just need to see the next step. Because when I take the next step, I can see a little bit further. Next step, 
a little bit further. And as we take those steps, we will be able to look back and say, God is changing me to become more like Jesus Christ. He's doing that work in me. And I can celebrate. And it's all to the praise and glory of God. Because it's not me doing it. It is God working in me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that, that we have your grace and peace, your unmerited favor, and things are right with you. We look back in each of our lives and we see what we were and where we are now, and we thank you for that. We thank you that you are working in our life, and we look forward to that day when the rest of the rough edges are knocked off. And we are the people that you want us to be, that we reflect Jesus Christ in every aspect of our life. Father, help us. Help us as we journey in that. Help us to encourage each other, to support each other, to continually grow in our love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 